Hey there, I'm Mike. Some of you know me from the Twisted Cape. Some of you know me because keep what you got until you get what you need, y'all. But regardless of how you know me, you know I love comics, and that's what we talk about on this podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mike's Big Stack. Oh, hell yeah, my thickies. Welcome to the show, everyone. Recording this week at the Federal Bureau of Thickness. Got a few things for you before we get to the city shoutouts as normal. All the clues are out for Mike's Thick Stack Attack number one. And those clues are in the titles for episodes 20 through 24. This is the last week I'll be dropping this reminder. Get those submissions in and you'll get mailed that sweet, sweet prize. We're going to close that off and then get something else moving Next, make sure you follow us on Twitch to watch either me or Jesse play Marvel's Avengers. More likely me than not. I'm almost done, actually. I'll probably be finishing the day this podcast releases, so great. The link to the Twitch channel is in our show notes. Now, here come your city shoutouts for the week. For starters, our thoughts are with our California listeners in San Jose and Oakland, California. Stay safe out there. What's going on out in Grafton, Massachusetts? Our friends in Brussels keep coming back, and we appreciate you for it. A big old hello and thank you to our friends in Knoxville. And finally, Ashburn, Virginia, you guys rock. As always, we start by rating the thickness of my stack, so do the smooshy while we check out Mike's Thickometer. Oh yeah, Mike's Thickometer. Thick like I like my pancakes, this week clocks in at an 8 out of 10 on Mike's Thickometer. Believe it or not, this thickness brings all the boys to the yard, and a lot of the girls too. In case you're curious, the stack this week is heavily in Marvel's favor. This week we begin with the DC books beginning with Batman number 99. I give this a 4 out of 5. This is our DC book of the week. Here we go. This is more of what I needed from this story arc. Hero returns, incredible art, meaningful plot points that tie into the tie-ins. This is a much better issue than what I feel we've been getting out of this storyline in this book so far. The issue kicks off with Joker talking to his chauffeur, Abe, about Gotham as he drives to Ace Chemical in his new Jokerized limo. He talks about how Gotham is, always has been, and always will be rotten and chaotic at its core. He even goes as far to say that it's why he exists, to prove this to Batman. Specifically to prove that it's Joker cities, not Batman City. Intercut in this little speech, we see Clown Killer, whose purpose I still don't really understand, doing what he does in the streets. Is he going to kill Joker when all of this is said and done? I just don't know. Meanwhile, we find out Punchline has been freed and that she and Joker are stepping up their plans as Joker quote-unquote cleans house, aka murders a bunch of the help, and mentions putting on his new suit. Oh yeah, he killed Abe on arrival to Ace. Batman does rally the Bat family, as well as Harley Quinn, and gives Nightwing back his suit, which was so cathartic for me. He gives the family instructions to retake the city, and this is where I have the biggest problem with this issue. Damien's absence isn't addressed at all. Signal, Orphan, and Spoiler don't say anything at all in this issue. And, unless it happens in Batman 100, we have no way to see them take back the city in the way that it's set up because all the Titans have really basically moved on from this. That said, Harley does get in a great one-liner calling Tim Duckboy. Batman also stops a rocket with a 
Batarang with his offhand, which is kind of sweet, honestly. There's also a page dedicated to Catwoman and what she is doing, but it seems like that was really a tease for Catwoman number 25, which I'm not currently reading. Batman arrives at Ace Chemical and has a hard conversation with Harley about finally killing the Joker and ending this nightmare. She pleads with him to stop her here or emerge victorious because any other outcome leads with her shooting him because this story needs a definitive ending. The last few pages are pretty interesting. We get a nanite animated Alfred controlled by the Joker and Joker in his very own Batsuit. I'm happy that we finally got somewhere to drive this story and these characters forward. But it feels a bit late. The art in this book is is spectacular though. It has been for a while, but there are some epic pieces of content in here. I'm now interested to see where this goes for finale. Next up, we have Detective Comics number 1027. I gave this a 4 out of 5. If you're wondering why this issue is so pumped up in both cost and size, it's the anniversary of the first appearance of Batman in this issue. In typical DC fashion, they go all out with stories from tons of writers, art from tons of artists, only bringing in the best of the best. While I liked many of the stories, the ones from Scott Snyder, Brian Michael Bendis, Matt Fraction, and Tom King were standouts to me. The other stories were good as well, but these are the ones that spoke to me the most. They drew on history and companionship, tragedy, humor, and heart at their best. I won't go into each story, but I think my favorite story is surprisingly the Bendis story. It's called The Masterclass, and at its core, it's a detective story. And it ropes in the entire Bat family, again, with the exception of Duke Thomas, a.k.a. The Signal, and Cassandra Kane, a.k.a. Orphan, which is a mistake in my opinion. They, put, they all really take the opportunity to put detective skills to use, and it's like watching detectives do an escape room. It's really, really cool. I highly recommend picking that up. Next up, we have Justice League number 53. I gave this a 4 out of 5. New story, new writer for this book, and it all works in its favor. Josh Williamson, who writes The Flash, takes over this death metal tie-in, which was unexpected. I didn't realize it was supposed to be a death metal tie-in. The book centers on Nightwing, who is not a part of the Justice League, as he reminds us over and over again throughout the issue. Nightwing and Hawkgirl rescue Detective Chimp, and there's an honestly pretty sweet move executed by Nightwing and Hawkgirl. They convince Detective Chimp to join up as they seek Perpetua's throne so they can end the world that they're currently living in and send it back to the normal world. They find a scarred Lex Luthor at the Hall of Justice who says they need to free the Legion of Doom members from Perpetua's grasp if they are to emerge victorious. The only problem is that the throne and the members of the Legion move often so they can't be caught. Furthermore, it's guarded by something called the Omega Knight, seemingly stitched together by Perpetua from a bunch of different nightmarish creatures. They find out Martian Manhunter has gone after him on his own and is locked in battle with the Mindhunter, a Batman-Martian Manhunter hybrid. I love the grand scale given to this book by the art. The style is perfect for this book and it perfectly complements the story. I feel like the story is pretty good too so far. I'm hoping it stays strong throughout this little tie-in and maybe Josh Williamson sticks around for a bit. Finally here, Teen Titans number 45. I gave this a three and a half out of five. Well, knowing that this book is being canceled soon adds a sense of urgency. This issue focuses on the team picking up the pieces after the events of the annual, which we covered in a previous episode. Robin is nowhere to be found in this issue, which is a good thing. Initially, the team is split 
to Kid Flash and Red Arrow, and then Crush and Roundhouse. So Kid Flash and Red Arrow clearly have some chemistry, but Kid Flash keeps getting shut down and friend-zoned, essentially, as they figure out that Gizmo's behind the hit that was attempted on them. Meanwhile, Crush and Roundhouse are spending time playing video games, and Crush is getting destroyed is as intense as ever. Both teams are being trailed by mysterious figures, and neither team really realizes this. The team follows separate leads to the same place where they're ambushed by Gizmo. One of the trackers reveals themselves to be Red Hood, who says they should leave Damien to the adults and just go home. They do eventually find Gizmo and start to rip up a warehouse that was supposedly sold uh, in a battle with Gizmo and his robots. The issue ends with lasers destroying all the robots and an angry-looking John Kent looking for Robin. I like this issue because it's been pushing resolution and redemption for the things that the team has done wrong over the course of the run. I also like that there's been no Damien because I feel like his story needs its own issue or multiple issues to play out, and maybe possibly not even in this book. While I enjoy the art, there are some inconsistencies that kind of bother me, like, Kid Flash has his hair in coils early in the book, and at other points, it's a low buzz cut. I know that seems dumb, but as a black person, it's cool to see hair like mine represented multiple ways, and that little detail stuck out to me and kind of made me feel let down. Alright, quick break, come back with the Marvel stories, and we'll bring this baby home. <laughs> Hey guys, this is Jesse at the Twisted Cape. We just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you amazing listeners of both the Twistcast and Mike's Thick Stack for your support over all these years. Just a friendly reminder to subscribe to our shows on your favorite podcasting platform because we're everywhere. Also, don't forget to like and rate the Twistcast wherever you listen. We do love our five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Don't forget to tell us what you like about the show in your review as well. And now, back to the show. Oh, yeah, we're back. Did you do that dance? Throw your hat up in the air? That little, little squish? It's a good time. Do it. Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's pretty pretty silly, honestly. I use this as a gif all the time. Anyway, jumping into the Marvel books here. Amazing Spider-Man, Sins of Norman Osborn, number one. I gave that a three and a half out of five. I will start by saying that this issue isn't quite what I expected. This is basically a way way to make sure that issue number 850 is more impactful than it probably would have been otherwise with this book. This one shot picks up right where last issue left off, furthering the confusion there for me, with the spiders contemplating how they're going to stop Peter from rescuing Norman Osborn. While much of this issue is recounting much of what Norman has done in the past and in alternate universes, for lack of a better term, much of recent history is left out. Full disclosure, I haven't been reading Ravencroft, which would likely be filling in some of the gaps as to what Norman's been up to. The spiders share that they have all had differing dreams or visions about Spider-Man being killed, with Norman Osborn being responsible for the various ways that he dies. Pete begins to go in and rescue Norman, and they have a tense back and forth that results in them reluctantly working together to survive. It seems that Kindred is behind Sin Eater, as we gather from a flashback series of panels where Sin Eater cures Martin Lee, a.k.a. Mr. Negative. Sin Eater uses these abilities in the riots against one of the guards, who then kills another guard, which is kind of terrible. Meanwhile, Norman Osborn shows Spidey a secret room that he has in the facility with plans, tech, monitors, and eventually the Green Goblin suit, but we'll get there. Before we come across the suit, though... Norman reveals that Dr. Kafka is still alive, 
under the influence of Sin Eater and has their newest patient, Freed, who's none other than Kane Marco, the Juggernaut, bitch! Unfortunately, a shot rings out, likely quote-unquote curing the Juggernaut and giving his powers to Sin Eater. Finally, Madam Web rallies the spiders to go stop Pete from doing whatever he's going to do with Norman, but Gwen, a.k.a. Ghost Spider, has some serious reservations. She reluctantly decides to go along, and the Order of the Web has now been formed. They even joke about them having a team name and everything now. Back inside, Spidey loses it thinking about what the Juggernaut is likely about to do and starts throwing Norman around when Norman reveals that he's trying to stop Kindred. I have a few feelings about this book overall. First, I wish that this was the artist being used on the main book instead of Mark Bagley, who, again, I love. I just feel like the tone here is better suited for this style of art of uh, Frederick Vincianti. I hope I said that right. Sorry, I don't want to disrespect you. From a story perspective, I while I like the story, I wish this had been split into two one-shots if you wanted to do that big issue 850, one focused on Norman and Pete, and one for- focused on the forming of the Order of the Web. There's still some meat left on the bone from this one-shot that I wish had been set aside for issues kind of like this, leaving the next proper issue for, for that giant showdown. I feel like there's a lot of work that needs to be done by eight, issue 850, and even if it's oversized, I don't like leaving so much to just one issue. Next up, we have Captain America number 23. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. This issue was tight and impactful for the overall narrative, which is great to me. This is a Sharon Carter-centric issue about her struggling with being an unnaturally older woman and dealing with the benefits and drawbacks to it. She uses the lessons that she's learned, in addition to the Iron Patriot armor, to help Steve out and stop Selene. There's a multi-page fight between Sharon and Celine, and Sharon uses sports analogies in her internal monologue to explain what she's doing to stop Celine, which is brilliant. She drains Celine of her power by running her out underwater, which is so good. And when she's taken back to town, Shuri takes Celine's amulet, reverses the curse on all the men of the town, as well as on Sharon Carter. She's restored to her young, vibrant self as the issue ends. I really dig the art in this issue, despite me having issues before with some of the facial work by this artist. Ta-Nehisi Coates continues to tell a cool story that often features Steve as a guest star in his own book, which I don't really mind. He does very Cap-oriented stuff, and based off of the tease for next issue, it seems like we're getting Cap back at the forefront, at the center of the book, with the return of the Red Skull. I think that this is a strong issue and it sets up stories in the future in a very strong way. Next up, we have Excalibur, number 12. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. While admittedly I am behind on this book, I couldn't miss out on the beginning of X with Swords, so I had to get this, this issue included. Apocalypse spends most of this issue using the High Lords to submit to his will and die to allow their bones to create a gateway or be killed and used the same way. So you can just die willingly, or I can kill you. Not much of a choice, Apocalypse. Not much of a fucking choice at all. Anyway, the ones that he needs to die fight, and then they die anyway and become made the gateway, except except for Kandra, because her essence really isn't present in her body. On Otherworld, Rogue and Gambit are searching for Betsy Braddock and looking to escape while Gambit has taken a stone the stone that actually has Kandra's essence, and she appears and talks to Gambit about what they're doing and begs him for protection from Apocalypse. 
They get spotted, which alerts the guards in Saturnine Citadel and end up in Saturnine's court by the Otherworld Gate. Gambit ends up throwing the gem through the gate, which seems like it possibly destroyed the Citadel, I'm not sure, and allowing Apocalypse to finish his gateway. I admittedly felt a little lost in this book, which is my fault, but I'm definitely intrigued about the story before this, specifically the machinations of Apocalypse and the story following Rogue and Gambit, who were newly married within the last like two years, I think it was. I love the thick lines in the art here, uh, hence the Mike's thick stack, especially how it makes Gambit pop in panels where he's featured. I really look forward to doing a backup episode on this title in the near future. Next up, I have Giant Size X-Men, Storm Number 1. I give this a 4 out of 5. This is a co-Marvel book of the week. The thing that I love about this book is how it connected several of the other Giant Size X-Men books and wrapped up the story. Storm has been infected with a techno-organic virus, and rather than die and be resurrected cleanly, which is understandable, a team is assembled to get her cured. That includes Cypher, Monet, Phantom X, the mutant cyborg hybrid, and an odd AIM scientist named Ned. They venture into the world, and it's an immediately hostile environment. Storm calms it all down by using her powers to summon a giant windstorm, but the virus takes a greater hold on her in those moments, and she passes out. They come across Phantom X with his brother and get right to work on curing Storm. As she's being fixed, they are attacked, and Storm is pulled from the chamber, restored, and changes the balance of the fight in a really badass set of panels. Ned and Phantom X opt to stay behind, and on the way out, Cypher talks to the removed virus, saying that he knows it's sentient and has a brief conversation with it as the issue ends. I'm hoping this comes back around sometime, but for now, I'm happy that Storm is all good. I love the art in this book, just absolutely perfect. Hickman picked the right artist to tell this story. Crisp, clean lines, great use of foreground and background perspective in in multiple pages on multiple panels. Trust me, it's beautiful. And just a touch of Jack Kirby with some of the weird stuff. This is just an absolutely complete book. Moving on to Hellions number four, that gave us a three and a half out of five. The previous three issues of this will be included on another backup episode, but this issue picks up right where issue three left off, with Havoc in the clutches of Madeline Pryor. Meanwhile, Psylocke, Wildchild, Grey Crow, Orphan Maker, and Nanny take on a cloned, mentally controlled team of Arclight, Riptide, Harpoon, Blockbuster, and Scrambler. Once they've all been subdued, Scarecrow kills his cloned former team, and Madeline attempts to figure out what's wrong with Havoc because he's been having these flashes of really possession almost or dissociative identity disorder. I'm not sure which. Um, and, at, and as she's trying to figure that out, she's shot down immediately. She dies in his arms. And in a moment of grief, he lets loose an epic blast destroying Sinister's lab that they were supposed to destroy anyway. So kind of win-win. They get back to Krakoa, and Havoc wants the Council to restore Madeline with their resurrection protocols because she was a clone of Jean. They decline for that very reason. She was a clone. They say she wasn't real. But part of the whole storyline here is that she is a real person. Finally, at the end of the issue, Nanny corners and confronts Sinister by saying that she's going to kill him at the end of the issue in a very, very disturbing way. This is just an absolute action-packed book and reads very quickly. I love that Hellions takes the worst of the worst and makes them a dysfunctional team to serve Krakoa's purposes. 
I also love the art in this book because the gravity of the heavy moments is clear while those of levity or tranquility shine through. Next up, we have Immortal Hulk number 37. I gave this a 4 out of 5. This issue seems to have all the leader's plans fall directly into place. From the start, the leader takes Samson off the board, trapping him in actual death, not allowing him to go back through the green door of resurrection like he probably would have. As Hulk fights Absorbing Man, Leader starts to lose his grip on Rick Jones with some of his personality creeping through. Titania goes to confront Rick Jones about what he's saying and what he's doing and gets backhanded really hard, causing Absorbing Man to ramp up his attack on Hulk. Hulk keeps the focus on him, allowing the gamma blockage to stop, forcing Charlene to choose between teleporting out Rick Jones or the Hulk. She chooses Rick because the Hulk is immortal and Hulk is killed by a weapon that Puck has, leaving him at the hands of a warrior-style Hulk that's actually the leader at the end of the issue. This book never ceases to amaze me. I love the crazy art style, detail, and all the horror influences that go into it. I love how the story is one giant setup by the leader. I, I cannot wait for the story arc to end, get a couple guests in, and really just talk about this book. Alright, next up we have Iron Man number 1. I gave this a 4 out of 5. This is a co-Marvel book of the week. Rarely do books truly reset the status quo of certain characters, and I feel like that's exactly what happens with this relaunch of Iron Man. The book opens with Tony basically dispatching Terex back into space, causing considerable property damage in the battle. He takes out a satellite, which knocks out a bunch of cable for people who use satellite. Who does that anymore? Anyway, he does what no one should do and reads the comments online, and it's not good. In the middle of that fight, he liquidates all of his stocks and gives himself $65 billion by doing so. He desperately wants to get back to his iron roots, so less tech, more dirty hands. In an effort to show how low Tony has gotten, Jan breaks up with him, he loses $5,000 in a drag race, and he just, he just seems emotionally low and lost. He throws a party at his house for a bunch of rich friends, and Patsy Walker shows up and starts to chat up Tony. They're approached by a guy named Fuller Teelhard, who is looking to pitch Tony on a new idea that he has to capture lightning and use it as a clean energy source. Tony shows Patsy a classic Iron Man suit as they excuse themselves from the party and asks her to go on a jaunt through New York in costume and tells her that an EMP is going to go off soon, frying all the digital vi- devices at the party they leave and he starts talking about what's essentially a midlife crisis when they discover a helicopter on a library which is certainly weird they discover unicorn who is stealing a gutenberg bible and as they try to stop him tony is struck in the back by what seems to be lightning destroying the bible and it ends with a close-up on fuller who is clearly more than what he seems i love this book and what it does to iron man but more specifically tony stark I love seeing him go through a weird midlife crisis and try and reinvent himself, because that's relatable. He can be such an interesting character when done well, and it seems like we're on our way to that. Also, the art in this book is breathtaking at times, especially around some of the expressive nature of some of the faces. Just so good. Next up, we have Thor number 7. I give this a 4 out of 5. This is the beginning of a quick two-part story, and it's just as good as you would have come to expect from this title recently. Mjolnir crashes down in Broxton, Oklahoma, and causes quite the stir. 
It's found by a man named Adam Aziz, who immediately, upon finding the hammer, makes a very specific phone call. Thor, via Raven, tells Sif to keep an eye on the hammer, and as he goes to meet Beta Ray Bill, he goes to have a meeting. Bill is clearly standoffish because last time they were together, Thor destroyed Stormbreaker and beat Bill horribly. Meanwhile, Iron Man shows up in Broxton and sees his name and phone number written on Mjolnir, and his reaction gives Thor a chuckle. By the way, that phone number actually works. You get to hear Tony Stark's message. I will post that in the show notes. Check that out. More seriously, Thor confides in Bill that things haven't quite been right, particularly with Mjolnir, Asgard, and and actually fate itself. Thor asks him to be his second-in-command, which Bill accepts by asking for a new hammer. As he confesses to Bill that Mjolnir has grown heavier for him, everyone else has had an easier time picking it up, Adam Aziz, who found the hammer, sees a message that says, pick it up. He does so and is transformed into the Asgardian version of himself. This is so good on multiple fronts. Humor, mystery, impending doom, the start of repairing an old friendship. The artist is different than before, but it works so far for the story. The subtle expression on the faces, mixed with the bombacity of Asgard, really makes this story shine. Alright, last story here, X-Men number 12, I gave this a 3 out of 5. This issue has a tie-in with Excalibur from earlier, so it helps to read all the X-Men books when you can. Summoner is busy discussing weakness when Apocalypse shows up to speak with his grandson. Summoner is his grandson. Apocalypse looks to send Krakoa through a portal to the other world, which is that gateway that he was building earlier, but has a hesitation and asks Summoner for clarity. Summoner shares the story of the fall of the world of Ammonith and the history of Arako, the companion island of Krakoa. Throughout this entire story, swords are major parts, which makes this a pretty fair lead-in for X of Swords. The story ends with no clear victor, Arako, or Ammonith, in the story that Summoner tells, but that only Apocalypse can save them all. Apocalypse sends Banshee and Unus the Untouchable with Summoner through the gate that he constructed. He looks to save those who can be saved or just take revenge on those from Ammonith to avenge Arako. I like having Apocalypse be a main character and a seeming focal point for this upcoming line crossover. I'm quite excited to see where this all goes. While the story here can get a little windy and confusing, which I imagine is part of the point, the art is so cool throughout. I'm ready for X of Swords, and I hope you are too. Okie dokie, that is all the time we have for this week. Remember, if you want to be on the show, hit me up on Twitter at SpiderMike29. Looking ahead to next week, if my sources are still accurate, I'm looking forward to Batman Superman number 12, Speed Metal number 1, and Flash number 762 from the DC side. From the Marvel side, of course Daredevil number 22, Immortal She-Hulk number 1, and X of Swords Creation number 1. Make sure you get your guesses in for Mike's Thick Stack Attack number 1. You could possibly win that thing. I want you to win it. I want to give this stuff away. That is all the time we have for this week. Of course, make sure you subscribe to The Twisted Cape on your favorite podcast platform, or just listen directly at thetwistedcape.com. There's a streamer right on the page. We are at the Twisted Cape. No spaces on every social media platform. Facebook, the Gram, Twitter, YouTube. Make sure you tune in weekly on Wednesday to the Twisted Cape's live show on Facebook or YouTube and live in them comments, which we go over during and at the end of each show. Finally, feel free to shoot us any feedback you want on this show, 
to thetwistedcape at gmail.com and make sure you use the subject line MTS. Thanks for tuning in. So until next time, give me the bridge now. Stay safe, wear a mask, stay twisted. Fix that.